came across an article this week about the world's most expensive Christmas tree. They constructed this at a luxury five-star hotel, and part of the purpose was they wanted to break the Guinness World Record for most expensive Christmas tree, which they succeeded. (laughs) This tree cost over $11 million. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world did they construct a tree that cost over $11 million? Did it go like 700 feet up in the air? What was this? No, it was a fairly normal Christmas tree, but they adorned it, they, they put ornaments on it that were made out of gold jewelry, platinum, diamonds, pearls. Apparently there were several diamond-encrusted Rolex watches as ornaments on this tree. It was absolutely extravagant. I have a picture here of the Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And you can see there's thousands of people there. They want to see the tree. And along with breaking the world record, the whole thing really was supposed to be a celebration of Christmas, an extravagant celebration of Christmas. But interestingly, guess where this hotel was located? This was the Emirates Palace Hotel in Abu Dhabi. United Arab Emirates, where close to 100% of the native population is Muslim. But they're all about Christmas over there, apparently. And it's not that the people in Abu Dhabi don't know that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. That's not what's going on. The issue here is that people all over the world, every culture, every religion, every political persuasion, almost everyone is totally comfortable with Jesus as long as you don't define him in biblical terms. Just the other day, I was driving with my family. We were heading home, and we drove by in our neighborhood this big, you know, plastic, lit nativity scene in one of our neighbor's front yards. And one of my kids pointed this out. And they said, look, they've got baby Jesus in the front yard. And they said, Dad, that means those people are Christians, right? And I said, that depends. <laughs> you know, it depends. Who do they believe Jesus was and is? You have to understand that nearly everyone, nearly everyone in the world today agrees that 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born in a manger. That is uncontroversial. What's controversial is who was that baby? Who is Jesus? Was he just a good, wise, profound teacher who left a pretty big mark on the world? Kind of in the same category as Gandhi, Mother Teresa, or Aristotle. If that's who Jesus was, we got no problems. (laughs) Everybody will applaud that Jesus. Or was he who he claimed to be? Was he who the Bible claims he was and is, which is the eternal Son of God? That's the question that we're going to try to answer over the next couple of weeks as we celebrate the Christmas season. And we're going to do it by looking at what the Apostle Paul has to say about the matter. So the last few years, we've studied the Christmas story from the Gospels. That's where you get the narrative story of the coming of Jesus. But we're going to look at it this year from a little bit different angle. And we're going to break this passage up into four headings, answering two of the most important questions about Christmas. What are the two most important questions about Christmas? Question number one, who was the baby? Who was he? 
Who was the baby born in the manger in Bethlehem? Question number two, why did Jesus come into the world? Okay, the baby, it was Jesus, spoiler alert. But, but who was Jesus? And why did he come into the world? Paul is going to answer both of those questions. So that's what you're in for the next couple of weeks. Who was this baby? Why was he born? Why does it matter? We're going to look at the first question and the first two headings this morning. So who was the baby? That's the first question. And to answer it, we first need to understand the setting for Jesus' birth. Paul says, verse 4, when the time came to completion. Okay, so this is heading number one. First question, first heading. Jesus came at the time of completion. Some translations will say the fullness of time. What does that mean? What is the time of completion? Well, Paul explains. Go back to verse 1. He says, now I say... That as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Okay, so in the ancient world, it was much clearer when a boy became a man. It was much clearer when a girl became a woman. When a child became an adult, there was a really clear boundary line. For the Jews, it was age 12. They had a ceremony that many Jewish people still practice today called bar mitzvah. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah celebration. Anybody? Okay, we got one. There was one person at the last service as well, which was kind of surprising. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, much larger Jewish population. I had many friends who were Jewish growing up, and so I've been to several bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. I think in Des Moines, there's probably less of that. But this is something that's been happening for millennia in the Jewish culture. And at the age of 12, at the bar mitzvah, this was the first Sabbath day after a boy's 12th birthday, he became a man. Boom, that's the day. Now you're a man. There was a formal ceremony. And prior to the bar mitzvah, the son was under the total control, authority, responsibility of his father. And after the bar mitzvah, he was considered a man, and he was himself morally responsible before God. Actually, I looked up a traditional prayer that would take place at a bar mitzvah. This is from centuries ago. But during the ceremony, the father would pray something like this. Blessed be thou, O God, who hath taken from me the responsibility of this boy. And then the son would pray to God something like this. My God and God of my father, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear the responsibility of my actions toward thee. I don't know if they pray something like that today, probably with, without the thighs and the these. But the point is, there's a clear point in time. Boom, you're an adult. We don't have that in our culture today. So we don't understand this quite as well. We have a legal age, 18. I think most of us would say 18 years old, you're still a child for the most part. Legally, you're an adult in the legal system. But practically, functionally, most people are not fully an adult by the age of 18. It's more of like a progression. There's a range. There's a window. You have some very mature 18-year-olds. You have some very immature 28-year-olds, unfortunately, in our culture. That's not the way it was in ancient times. 
And every culture had this. It wasn't just the Jews. The ages might be slightly different. In the Greek culture, it was around the age of 18. The traditions were slightly different. But in every culture, it was much more clear when a child became an adult. And what Paul is saying is that in the same household, so, okay, you have one family, one household, you could have a son on the one hand, and you could have a servant on the other hand, and they're basically the same, functionally. Practically, there's no difference. This is what he says in verse 1. I say that as long as the heir, that's the son, as long as he's a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. This is especially true in affluent homes, even sort of middle-class-ish homes. It was very common at this time in history in these cultures that they would have a household servant or a slave, a doulos. And the children oftentimes were under the oversight of that servant. And so they were responsible for everything, their education, their training, their household tasks. They were under the management of that household servant. And oftentimes this would be the same servant who would oversee and manage the other servants. And so Paul's like, look, practically they're the same. You have the son, you have the servants, and they experience the same thing practically, even though one positionally is a son, the other is not. Then Paul says this, Verse 2, though he's the owner of everything, instead he is under guardians and trustees until when? Until the time set by his father. And when that time came, there's a radical transformation. The boy now has the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities and the legal status of an heir. Everything that belongs to the father now belongs to To him, he is responsible before God and before others for himself. No no longer under the guardianship of his father. So that's the metaphor. But what's the point? Paul says in verse 3, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. What does that mean? It's kind of hard sometimes when you jump straight into the middle of a book, Galatians chapter 4. What happened in the first three chapters? But fortunately, Galatians is written by the same author of the book of Romans, which we've been studying. And also, fortunately, Paul is hammering some of the same points in Galatians that he hammers in the first three chapters of Romans. And one of those, one of Paul's central points in Romans and here in Galatians is that obedience to the law, obedience to God's commands in the Old Testament can't save you. Can't do it. Following all the rules that God has laid out in the Old Testament can't make you righteous. They can't cleanse you from sin. They can't give you a relationship with God, and they can't give you the status of a son. That's the idea. In fact, Paul says the law makes you a slave not a son. The law makes you a slave to sin because you can't keep the law. And the law was never intended to make you a son. It was, it was the guardian. The law is the guardian. The law was the overseer in the metaphor. The law was given to prepare you for something, which Paul explains is the coming of Jesus at the time of completion at the time set by the Father. So in the metaphor, the child and the servant represent life under the Old Testament law. That's what they represent. And the adult and the son represent life in Christ. 
Now, that doesn't answer the question, why 2,000 years ago? Okay, so that, the idea is the time of completion is when Jesus would come, but why that specific time? Have you ever wondered that? Why didn't Jesus come 25 years ago? Why doesn't he come 100 years from now? Why doesn't he come during our lifetime? Why didn't he come 1,000 years ago? Why 2,000 years ago? There's several reasons. Paul explains first that the time was right spiritually. This is probably the most important reason, biblically, theologically, the time was right spiritually. Right before Galatians chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says this, why then was the law given? Have you ever wondered that? Okay, so Christianity, if you've, if you've grown up going to church, Bible preaching church, then you've probably heard this a lot. The law can't save you. Following the rules doesn't save you. Obeying the Ten Commandments, it doesn't, it doesn't save you from sin. It doesn't make you a Christian. It can't. And so you ask yourself, well, then why give the law in the first place? If it doesn't, if it doesn't get you to God, if it doesn't get you to heaven, if it's not a roadmap that you can follow, why bother with it at all? Why was the law given? Paul says this. It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Okay, so the law was given because of sin until Jesus would come. What does that mean? Verse 22, the scripture, that's synonymous with the law, the scripture and the law, same thing, imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus to those who believe. Okay, so the law. Think about the law just for the sake of illustration, like the Ten Commandments. The law is more than the Ten Commandments, but if we could just condense it down into a really basic, simplified form, think about the Ten Commandments, the book of Exodus. And the Ten Commandments were given by God as boundary lines for human flourishing. Okay, so he, he says, uh, here, here's the boundary lines. Boom, right here. You want to be happy? Stay in bounds. You want to have good relationships? Stay in bounds. You want to have a good relationship with God, good relationship with other people? Do you want to experience joy and purpose and meaning and life according to God's design? Here's your boundary lines. Ten commandments. It's really simple. You ready? Don't lie. <laughs> Have you ever told a lie before? Does it just like make your life better when you tell lies? <laughs> you just have more peace, more fulfillment, more joy, better relationships when you tell lies? Of course not. God says that's out of bounds. Don't tell lies. He says don't steal. Does it improve your life when you take things that don't belong to you? Of course not. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't covet or envy. Honor your parents. Honor God. Don't worship idols. These are the boundary lines for human flourishing. So God, obviously, gave those commandments because he wants you to obey them. It's not just like a gotcha. You can't do it. No, he gives those commandments because he loves you. He wants you to experience life. He wants you to experience joy. But Paul says he also gave those commands. He also gave the law so that people would become aware we can't stay in bounds. We can't do it. We can't stay in bounds. We can't follow 
the rules. That's part of his point. So God, in his mercy, he wants you to see, I can't do it. I can't follow these laws. I keep breaking them. He wants the whole world to be aware of the fact that we are sinful and broken and in need of a Savior. That's what the law does. That's part of what it's for. It humbles you. When you look at it, when you hold yourself up against the standard of God's commands, it humbles you. That's what it's designed to do. And if it does the opposite, if it makes you think, yes, I got this, look at me, then you don't get it. (laughs) You don't understand God's standard. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if anyone looks at another person with lust, he is guilty of the sin of adultery in his heart. The Bible teaches that man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at your heart. Nobody is righteous. Nobody keeps the law. Nobody lives up to God's standard. The law is designed to humble you. The law is designed to prepare your heart for the coming of Jesus, to teach you you need a Savior. You can't save yourself. And what Paul's saying in Galatians 3 is that after nearly 2,000 years of life under the law, the people of God could see with as much clarity as they were ever going to see that they couldn't save themselves through obedience. Time was right spiritually. Time was also right religiously. Historically, we know that after the Babylonian captivity, so Babylonian exile, this was several hundred years before the life of Jesus, something fundamentally changed about religious life in the nation of Israel. So for a couple thousand years, the Israelites struggled. What was their biggest stumbling block? It was idolatry. Idolatry. In fact, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law from God, what were the people doing? Building a golden calf. (laughs) Just like right out of the gate. They get out of Egypt, they start worshiping idols, and this was a trap for them over and over. They worshiped Moloch, they worshiped Baal, they worshiped Asherah. But at the time of the Babylonian captivity, the people of God finally had enough of idols. History tells us they they never really went off into idol worship again, which was a good thing. Now, they got a lot else wrong. They rejected the Messiah. They developed a religion of self-righteousness, which is not what the Old Testament points to. But they weren't worshiping idols, and there were some other developments as well. They started a system of synagogues. So the temple was destroyed. The temple was the place where the people of God worshiped God. No more temple. So how are we going to worship? Well, they started something called synagogues, which were local manifestations of the people of God worshiping God. They were much like churches are today. In fact, this is where most historians think we got the model for the local church in the New Testament. It came from the model of the synagogue. So you have people, Jews, people of God who worship God, and they have a place where they gather at a building once a week on the Sabbath to worship together. So they would sing together the Psalms. They would pray together. And the prophet Ezra, again, just a few hundred years before the life of Jesus, compiled the scriptures, the Old Testament. And so they had them all in one document. And typically a synagogue would have the scrolls of the Old Testament, which was a new development in the life of the nation of Israel. And so that meant that a rabbi like Jesus, 
became possible for him to travel around the entire nation proclaiming the gospel from the scriptures in the local synagogues, which is exactly what Jesus did, which would have not been possible earlier in history. The time was also right culturally. Several years ago now, Time Magazine published an article titled, Who's Biggest? The 100 Most Significant Figures in All of Human History. Any guesses as to who was number one on the list? Taylor Swift. Can you believe that? I'm just kidding, it wasn't Taylor Swift. (laughs) It was Jesus, of course. It's not even close. I mean, all of human history is organized around the life of Jesus, B.C., A.D. And so even a secular publication has to admit that. But there were two other historical figures in their top 15 that played extremely important roles that I believe God used to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. The first was Alexander the Great. You guys know Alexander the Great? According to the authoritative list, Time Magazine, he's number nine most significant person in human history. He lived about 300 years before Jesus. He was the emperor of Macedon, which is modern-day Greece. And Alexander the Great, he became emperor when he was 20 years old. It's utterly fascinating. He reigned for 13 years, and in that time, he conquered basically the whole world. He conquered everyone. The entire Mediterranean world was under the authority, the rulership of Alexander the great. He's considered a military genius, the greatest commander of armies probably in human history. And there's a whole story that follows that. But the thing that is the most significant is that by the time you get to the life of Jesus in the first century, you have a situation where for the first time in history, there is one common language for the most part. Now, I'm not saying that every Israelite person Every Spanish person, every Turkish person all spoke Greek. That's not what I'm saying. But what you had was there was people from every country, every religion, every culture, some people who spoke Greek. It was the, much like English is today. It was the language of business and commerce. It was the language of policy, foreign policy and diplomacy. And it was because of the widespread use of the Greek language that the early scriptures were able to be transmitted and spread so rapidly in the first century. Nothing like this had ever happened in human history prior to this. Most of you know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. What language was the New Testament written in? Greek, all of it. The original manuscripts were written in Greek. And in fact, the Old Testament, even before the life of Jesus, was translated into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament in the first century, the world was ready for the rapid transmission of that information. Time was also right politically. The second figure on Time's list was a man named Julius Caesar. He's number 14. And a successor of Julius Caesar, he's a little bit further down, was Caesar Augustus, Octavian. These two men did essentially exactly what Alexander the Great did, but for the Roman Empire. They began the Roman Empire, and so they were just as successful militarily, but much more successful diplomatically. The Romans established something in the first century called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so you had had a situation where for the first time in world history, for the first time, people could travel across the world. 
So before this, for all of human history prior to the first century, it was very dangerous, very difficult to travel very far. You think about it, like if you want to go from Israel to Spain, you're going to have to travel through the desert, through the wilderness. (laughs) I mean, there's wild animals, there's no food. And then once you get there, people are going to say, these people don't speak our language. They don't wear our clothes. They don't worship our gods. Let's kill them. Take their stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's how it worked. You could just go anywhere that you wanted to. But in the first century, what happened is that the Roman Empire was so dominant and they had soldiers and forces everywhere. And so they prevented violence. They said, no, you can't just kill each other. We'll kill you <laughs> if you do that. They, had, they, they conquered the world. And not only did they do that, they created peace through force, but they also created a system of roads, Roman roads. So for the first time, you could go from Israel to Spain. You could go from Spain to North Africa relatively safely and easily. Now, not compared to today's standards, but you could actually do it. And because of that, Again, this is, this is why the first Christians were able to take the gospel to most of the known world in one generation. One. It was the direct disciples of Jesus that took the gospel all over the Mediterranean world in like 40 years. That's wild. Would have been totally impossible just a couple hundred years earlier if Jesus had come then. So that's the setting. It's the time of completion. This is the time God chose in his sovereignty. But what exactly happened at that time? Paul says, verse 4, God sent his son. God sent his son. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now we get to the real meat and potatoes of the question. Who's baby Jesus? Who is that little baby born in a manger? According to Paul, It's the sent Son of God. That's who it is. He is God's Son. God sent His Son. Now, where did God send Him from? What does it mean, God sent His Son? Like He sent Him from another country? He sent Him through the mail? He sent Him on a plane? God sent His Son from where? Turn to John chapter 1. This is probably the most explicit explanation in the Bible of what happened when Jesus was born. John, this is not John the Baptist. John, the Gospel of John is written by John, the disciple of Jesus. So there's 12 disciples, and there are three who are in the inner circle. They're they're sort of like the, the leaders of the leaders. They're the closest guys to Jesus. Peter, James, John. Of those three, John is the closest. John is called the disciple Jesus loved. He's probably Jesus' best human friend when Jesus was on the earth. And John wrote in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, all this is a little bit cryptic at first. You're thinking, who is he talking about? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Who is this Word? Well, in verse 16, John explains 
He's really clear about it. He's being a little bit cryptic, poetic, but then he says this, indeed, verse 16, we've all received grace upon grace from his fullness. So whoever he's talking about, we've received grace upon grace from his fullness. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John chapter one, really clear. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus is a name in Hebrew that means savior. So when Mary and Joseph got the news, okay, Mary, you're pregnant. They didn't just look at a baby book like my wife and I did and say, well, that, those names look cute. That one sounds good. Let's, let's just try it on for size, let it roll off the tongue for a little while. Okay, yep, that's what we're going to name him. That's what we're going to name her. That's the way most of us name our kids. We just pick a name that we think sounds good. That's not what they did. It says that when the angel appeared to Joseph. Remember, Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Jesus was conceived through a miraculous conception. Mary, his mother, was a virgin. And so Joseph, he's trying to sort this all out. And an angel appears to him and says, hey, don't divorce her. You can believe her. She's not cheating on you. This is, this is the son of God who's going to be born, and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. Christ was not Jesus' last name, believe it or not. Jesus Christ. Nope. Christ is a title for Jesus. Christ is a title that means king. It means Messiah. In the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied for hundreds of years that God was going to send a Savior king, the Messiah, the Christ. And so the person John is telling us about in John chapter 1 is Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph of Nazareth, who's the promised Savior and King. But who else is Jesus? John gets way more specific. Who else is Jesus according to John? Well, he says Jesus Christ is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? Part of what makes John chapter 1 a little bit confusing is that John never explains what he means by calling Jesus the Word. So we get the answer in verse 16, the Word is Jesus, but why does he call him the Word? He never explains. And the reason he doesn't explain is because to his original audience, he wouldn't have had to explain. Everybody would have known exactly what he was talking about. In the Greco-Roman Jewish world, they're very influenced by Greek philosophy. And in Greek philosophy, they use the idea, the concept of the word. In Greek, this is the logos. The logos was a description of ultimate reality. So the Greek philosophers, they looked at the universe and they said, this has to come from somewhere. It didn't just pop into existence. All of this has to come from somewhere. And not just the physical universe, but they even thought that reason, logic, consciousness, beauty, philosophy itself, the ability to think and reason. They said, it's got to come from somewhere. And so they said, well, it comes from the Lagos. There's an ultimate source of reality. They didn't want to call it God. They called it the Lagos, the ultimate reality. Now, the Jews, they also viewed the word as something very significant, very important. But in the mind of a Jew in the first century, the word is God's revelation to people specifically in the scriptures, but also through the prophets. God's people, 
for centuries heard from God. Unlike the the pagan nations, the, the Jews worshiped a God who speaks to them through his revealed word. So the prophets, they would say often, you read the Old Testament, they would say something like, the word of the Lord came to so and so. Thus saith the Lord. They would say, this is what God speaks to his people. So the Jewish understanding of the word is that it was God's self-revelation. God spoke to his people. Hebrews 1, verse 1, says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So the word is the ultimate reality. The word is the, the revelation of God himself through language. And John says, Jesus Christ is the word. He's the word. Number two, John says, Jesus Christ is before all things. In the beginning was the word. The beginning of what? He's not talking about just the beginning of the story. He's talking about the beginning of everything. This is a carbon copy of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just in case you don't catch that reference, John clarifies in verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Thirdly, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things gets even more wild. Verse 3, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Think about what this means for who Jesus is for a second. What type of character traits would qualify someone to create everything that exists? (laughs) Intelligence? Mm, I don't think so. We got to be creative. Maybe an engineering degree? Nope. In order to create matter itself, in order to create time itself, in order to create knowledge and information itself, you would need to be eternal, all-powerful, omniscient. In order to create life, you'd need to be independent. Theologians call this divine aseity. It's a Latin phrase that means from himself. There's only one possible being that can have aseity, and that is God. The idea is that God is uncaused. God, his li- he doesn't derive his life from somewhere else. All of you guys have life. Isn't that wonderful? We have the gift of life. But where did you come from? Your life comes from somewhere. It comes from your parents. You have parents. They came together. You were conceived. You have life. That's not the way God is. God doesn't have parents. God doesn't come from anywhere. God's not caused by anything. Jesus says in John 5, 26, the Father has life in himself. You get your life from somewhere else. You are contingent. You are caused. God's life comes from himself. And look at what John says in verse 4 about Jesus. In him was life. That's unbelievable. And this leads to the inescapable conclusion that Jesus Christ is God. And again, just in case you're not putting all of this together, John makes it really explicit. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. There it is. He makes no bones about it. Jesus is God. Now you might say, well, how can Jesus be with God and be God at the same time? It's because we worship a God who is one but he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. It's utterly unique to Christianity. We worship one God in three persons. And what that means is that Jesus is no less God than the Father. This is what the New Testament affirms over and over. Read about this in Hebrews 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1. Jesus is no less God than God the Father. This is what Jesus himself declared repeatedly. This was the main reason they killed him. In John chapter 10, verse 31, it says again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. They hated Jesus. They're looking for opportunities to kill Jesus. This is one of them. Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? It's a little bit tongue in cheek. (laughs) Like, is it for healing people? Is that why you're killing me? Healing all the sick people? Is it for feeding people? Is it for teaching people the truth in love? Is it for casting out demons? Which one? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus Christ is God. The Bible is abundantly clear about this. Now back to Paul in Galatians 4. Paul says, God sent his son from eternity past, from outside the boundaries of our universe, from the very throne room of heaven, God sent his son. And what that means is that baby, born in the manger, wrapped in a swaddling cloth, laid next to animals, out in, you know, this little podunk town, shepherd town in Bethlehem, that little baby is your creator. You ever thought about that? That little baby is your king. That little baby is your ultimate authority. He's your judge. The Bible says that one day every single person who's ever lived will stand before the glorified Jesus and he will judge us. He's going to look at our life and he's going to say, how did you do living according to my law? And it is Jesus, it is that baby in a manger who will declare each person either innocent or guilty. He will welcome you into heaven or sentence you to condemnation in hell. Paul also says he was born of a woman, born under the law. So Jesus is not only God, but he's a real human being. This is remarkable. And he's not just any human being. See, God can do anything he wants. Jesus could have come into the world as a 30-year-old man in perfect health, as like the wealthiest person ever. He could have just come and boom, he's a king, reigning, ruling, with a throne, with armies, listen to me or die. Jesus could have done that, but he doesn't. Jesus came into the world as a human baby born in a barn to poor teenage peasants. And Jesus, as a baby, had to nurse. He would have cried. He had to learn to walk. He would have pooped in his diaper. (laughs) He was a real baby. He humbled himself. He had to learn how to speak. He was a real person. And Paul says he was subject to to the law. This is remarkable. So Jesus is the eternal lawgiver. He makes the rules. He exists outside of the rules, but Jesus humbles himself and he says, 
I'll live according to my rules. Jesus never asks us to do anything he himself is unwilling to do. Just like you and I, Jesus as a man had to live in the same boundaries that we fail to live within. Except he didn't fail. He lived a perfect life. He lived a righteous life. He lived a sinless life. Even though he had a human nature. He had a human nature through his mother, but he had no sinful nature. This is why Jesus didn't have a biological father. His father is God the Father. He was born through the power of the Holy Spirit, so he had no sin nature. And because of that, Jesus did what you can't do. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He had his own righteousness. And that qualified him to stand in your place to take the punishment you deserve for breaking God's law. And this is exactly why he came. Jesus was born as a baby to live a perfect, sinless life as a man, ultimately to die as a dirty, guilty criminal on a Roman cross. And he did that so that you could go free. He died so that you could live. He became guilty so that you could have his innocence. The one who is our eternal king and ultimate judge is also our humble servant and our savior. That's the message of Christmas. And I want to close with just one quick question. Here's the question. You ready? Do you recognize this Jesus? Do you recognize him? When you drive by the nativity scene and you see the little plastic baby, who do you think, who is that? Who is that? Is it, the, is it God become a man? Do you think of the eternal divine creator of the universe who humbled himself and died so you could be made righteous? Here's what John says. John 1 verse 10. He says, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. That is a tragedy, brothers and sisters. Do you recognize him? Do you recognize this Jesus? Because he came to save you. That's why he came. Now there's some additional questions. Why did Jesus come to save you and make you righteous? Okay, he came to die on the cross to make you righteous. But is it just simply to save you from hell so you don't have to be punished for your sins? No, it's way more than that. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So come back next week. Let's pray. God, thanks for, thanks for this good news. That you sent your son. And Jesus, that you, being the king, the creator of the universe, you humbled yourself. You serve us. And so God, we are accountable to you. You have put a standard before us that we can't, we, we, we can't live up to. We're guilty before you, God. But we have no reason to complain. One, because we're guilty. But two, because not only are you our judge, but you're our servant. You're our savior. What an incredible gift. God, I pray we wouldn't miss that. God, I pray each one of us, we would humble ourselves. We would, we would put our trust and our hope in Christ and not in ourselves and not in the world. God, I pray that you would Stir our hearts to worship this Christmas season.